there was not a point writing that book that I ever stopped feeling fearful that what I was writing was a lot of terrible rubbish. I only kind of really relaxed like a little bit when it was voted book of the month by US librarians. And that was a moment of, well, okay, they're librarians. You know, that, that kind of means, that has to mean something. So at that point I felt like, okay, maybe this book is, is okay. I went to did have a few a few faces in there as, as well so that was also part of you know obviously I couldn't talk about that but I could sort of fictionalize it I went into rehab expecting to meet a lot of scary addicts and I would say some of the scariest people I met were running the the clinic that was a lot of my later inspiration for the book Welcome to another bestsellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I am still Natalie Jameson. You say that, but one day I think you might change your name. <laughs> or like give yourself a rap name. Uh, no, I don't think I'll do that. I'm just like, a, I'm slightly anxious because I, the conversation that we are having today with a brilliant author, Kate Quinn, yeah. I feel like as, as ever, I think I managed to kind of quell my oversharing for a while, but I feel it's like spilling out again now. So I, I can I be honest with you? I was worried about you. Because, yeah, well, because we were Kate and I were sharing things like about our wedding days and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's relevant to the story. And then I was looking at you on camera and I was thinking, she doesn't want to play. So I'm not going to go, Natalie, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and then towards the end, you really started to let go. The handbrake came right <laughs> off. Yeah, it happens sometimes. It's like, yeah, who's going to listen? Really? I don't, it's I fine. don't think you should quell it. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, as long as you're not offending anybody. No, I don't think so. Just my own psyche. Uh, but that, that's something for a therapist another day. <laughs> or we can turn this into in the psychiatrist chair. If you yeah. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I'll have a bloody good go. Well, let's, uh, you know, let's not pretend it's always a, a whisper away from being a therapy yeah, session. That's film. true. That's true. But the reason why this is especially pertinent today, because Kate Quinn, who's our guest, the new book, The Clinic, is set in a top end rehab clinic. And it's kind of a little bit of a locked room who done it and what have they done? And the reason we've talked about how much we shared is because Kate writes at the very beginning of this book, this is the first book she's written sober. So obviously she's imbued quite a lot of her own experiences through rehab and what have you into this story, which I think you can tell as well from the level of detail and the authenticity. Do you agree? I do. Yeah. And, and also I think it's important to say upfront that yes, obviously these are very serious issues and you know a lot of trauma involved but this is such an entertaining book like the way that you know I think she comes across as a person as well I hadn't met her before I know that you had um she's such a delightful person to spend time with and I felt that from reading the clinic as well you know from the first few chapters I was like I am into this story I'm loving the kind of glitz of these characters and uh it's there are celebrities in this clinic and um yeah it's a really delicious world that she plays with. So enough from us and I will hand over to my esteemed colleague Phil to give you the full intro to Kate Quinn.
Our guest today on Best Sellers, I first met during the pandemic when her amazing book, Black Widows, came under my nose and I devoured it in about two or three days. And for me, that's really, really quick. I am not, as I've told you before, a quick reader. So then when I got an email about a month ago from a publicist saying, I don't suppose you'd fancy reading the new one by this writer I've got called Kate Quinn. I'm like, Kate Quinn, yes, please. Yeah, I didn't know that there was a new book coming. The book's called The Clinic. It's immense for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's a page-turning thriller. It's got all the twists and turns that you want from a great thriller to keep you thinking, I don't care if it's 2.15 in the morning, I've got to do this next chapter, which happened to me twice, uh, hence the bags. And the other thing about it, which is pretty sensational, um, which we've already cleared with Kate that we're okay to chat to you about, is that in the very beginning of the copy I received, Kate writes that this is the first book she's published sober. And this is, according to Kate, book number nine, although we both had to take shoes and socks off to count those up, right? That's why we did. (laughs) Welcome to Bestsellers. It's lovely to see you again. And I'm really pleased that you had another book out because I love Black Widows. And uh, for some reason, I know there's been a book in between, I think, hasn't there? And I didn't get that. Yeah, they obviously skipped you off the list, but it's so nice to see you again. And thank you so much for having me on, on the show. It's, it's it's really nice to be back. I've got to ask then, because you start the book with it before the story starts, how was it writing a book sober? What were the differences that you noticed? So it was it was terrifying, honestly. Um, I, I was, when I went in, to rehab for alcoholism, I my, a lot of my fear process was around never being able to write another book because I think most authors, and obviously I'm speaking to two authors here, are on the high empathy spectrum. And that's what we delve into to produce the emotions for our books. And my books are crime thrillers. They often go to dark places. And I strongly felt that I needed the alcohol to almost armour me up to be able to go into those dark places and experience those emotions and relay them to to my readers. So it it was very frightening. Luckily, I did find I was able to come at that process in, in a different way, probably in a healthier way. Yeah, because it's an interesting thing, right, that you're a former journalist as well. And uh, Phil and I are still, like, do you ever stop being a journalist? I don't know if you ever do stop. I think your brain is hardwired a bit like that. But it's one of the few professions, I think, uh, along with some of the other creative industries, if you like, like certain sectors of the music industry, um, where it's almost acceptable to drink as part of your work culture, very much so. Um, I know, like, in finance, there's obviously a lot of books and thrillers written about the kind of hard partying lifestyle that goes with that. But often, I don't know how it was in your journalistic career, would you go to events or work things where actually drinking and working physically, writing, doing something still went hand in hand? Yes, very much so. I I mean, I was a journalist probably in the early 2000s for, for a good 10 years. The culture back then, a little bit less now, but definitely was very much it was still that fleet street vibe that you you go to pubs and and that kind of thing and and yeah i think it is different to the finance industry actually because they have the culture of working hard playing hard but it's very much out of work isn't it as as you say whereas for, for journalists and artists and musicians I think we kind of wear our feelings on the outside so it's kind of accepted that that we would be uh, drinking almost to kind of get ourselves through those uncomfortable um, parts of our lives and and that we would be able to drink and create or take take substances and create. And there was a time where it was really ingrained, wasn't it? I mean, I remember, I won't name the journalist because it's not fair, but 
a, a newspaper journalist invited me as a broadcaster to Prime Minister's Questions at the House of Commons. And you can sit in the public gallery and watch it. And it's amazing to watch the kind of full theatre of it. But it finished by 12.30. And at 12.45, we were in the House of Commons bar. And at 5.30, I was clinging onto the rail of the bar because I couldn't stand up. And I said to him, I, I'm going to have to go. I'm, I'm, you know when you're so drunk that you know you're drunk? There's a part, isn't there? Yeah, I think through that's a bad moment, isn't it? Yeah, it really, really is. There's, there's a part where you don't know you're drunk and you're just having a great time. And then you go yeah. past that. And you're like, I am drunk and I can't stand up. And that was 5.30. Now, the difference is, and the reason why I tell this story is not to show off at it, is to say, at that point, I got the tube home, right? At that point, he went back to the office and filed four 1,000-word pieces. And I couldn't right, stand yeah. up. Sounds that, familiar. That, well, there you go. You go. Right, yeah. okay. Now, it's hard to explain to people who haven't been embedded in that culture because they go, well, surely you can turn a drink down. You don't have to. You didn't have to drink that much. You must have known when you were going over the limit. But when that's everyone around you, it don't, you don't feel out of sorts, do you? No. And, you know, actually, the book I did before to this one kind of addresses that, uh, Blood Sisters, that there's a culture. It was set in an outback bar. And I personally worked in an outback bar. And it was very interesting. Um, and also in a hostess club in Japan, I found it fascinating how quickly you go native in terms of the drinking and what's normal and you start out saying, well, I'm never going to drink like these people. And within a very short amount of time, it's become very normalised to be as as drunk because you've got everybody else masking you, really. Yeah, and I think it's a bit like as well, I can remember, because I'm old, uh, that when I first started working, smoking at work was still a thing. And there was, then it kind of moved to like smoking rooms or smoking outside, but it very much became, you missed out on work stuff. You missed out on networking and getting jobs, actually, if you didn't have those off-the-cuff conversations with the smokers, uh, who quite often were bosses and things. And I think drinking has a similar thing. Like you say, it's it's not like a, it's not the same as the peer pressure, but it's if you're part of that group, then you're sort of included. And then that does help your career in a weird, messed up way. Yeah, because you're bonding, right? It's a, it's a mm. form of bonding. It, yeah, it's slightly unhealthy, we might argue, but it, that it's recognised in, in the UK with all us buttoned-up people that we would obviously need to have a few drinks to be able to actually uh, bond with one another. So when you're writing The Clinic, and we will get to what it's about in a second, but when you're writing that, was there um, a saturation point for you where you thought, actually, you know what, this is still good, and I'm writing this sober? You know, you said before you feared that the creativity might disappear with the alcohol. Yeah, so no, there was not a point writing that book that I ever stopped feeling fearful that what I was writing was a lot of terrible rubbish. Uh, a couple of people asked me that, and I only kind of really relaxed like a little bit when it was voted book of the month by US librarians. And that was a moment of, well, okay, they're librarians. You know, that that kind of means, that has to mean something. So at that point I felt like, okay, maybe this book is, is okay. You know, and I'm not disappointing all my future readers, but it was in some ways very easy to write because I had a lot of material from having personally been in rehab. And it was material I wasn't really able to talk about because it would compromise the anonymity of who I was with or maybe, yeah, I felt disloyal. So I was able to kind of put it in the book. Um, but, uh, yeah, at the, at the same time, I so that was an easy part, the, that all that material. But then it was hard. It felt hard not knowing how I was writing differently. And I also imagine, did it feel harder too? Because as you were saying, and, and as you address in the book, often people who are creative and very high on that empathy spectrum, you mask it with 
a drug or a drink. And so if you're expressing all of these things in a thrilling book, but it deals with a lot of those emotions and you were kind of doing that without that usual crutch or mask, was the actual emotions of going through that process and putting that onto the page tougher too? I think it was different, I would say. So in some ways it was harder and in some ways it was just different. Like I would go to slightly different emotional places, which was probably what I was worried about. So I think in some ways it wasn't as dark as some of my other books. But then I think in men- in other ways it was more real and had more raw emotion. Um, but it was emotion that I had kind of learned in the rehab experience to be able to deal with rather than emotion that I wasn't dealing with and trying to suppress with alcohol. Can I, so just on this point then, before we set up the story, I just want to read a bit. There's no spoilers to this, but it's probably about two thirds of the way in, but it's a description of detoxing. And when I read this, it just, um, I just thought it's, it's too good. It's too good a description. Only someone who can possibly have gone through it would, (laughs) would have been able to write this. So I just want to share this with you listening. As I hang over the bowl, all my skin from my legs to right up my back and across my shoulder blades writhes like insects. Somewhere between here and the bathroom, I've been flayed alive and covered in a wriggling swarm of wasps. I dig in my nails to scratch and it drives the swarm into deeper, itchier places under my arms. I want to tear off my own body. Oh, it's quite hard hearing that, you know, now after a year's a year's gap. I quite a, a few people have commented on that particular passage, so I'm glad it's obviously hitting the spot for people. Mm. Um, uh, did that come from deep within? I don't want to be too intrusive, but that just, just sounds so. Yeah, I mean, certainly, yes. Um, that particular experience, and all, there's a lot of physical symptoms when you're addicted to alcohol. I did marry it up with some ideas of uh, that particular character is also has a prescription painkiller addiction, and and also I experienced a lot of kind of memory gaps which I kind of play on a lot in the, in the book because it was so disconcerting when you start to unpick and remember things to remember things that you're not even sure happened. And then, but it's logically, it seems that, well, they're coming up for me now because now I can deal with them, but, it, but they can, some of those memories can feel very unreal. So that was something I definitely play on that feeling that you can't trust yourself in, in the book because it was such a surreal personal experience. Right, I'm going to set this up. We've got two two kind of first-person narrators in this. You've got Meg and you've got Kara. Uh, Meg um, is a casino secret service style kind of security person who I loved. Right? I thought just that's a great character. And she's amazing at reading people. And, and there's no spoiler in this. Early on, she's told that her sister, who's a rock star, has died in rehab, right? And so she goes off to check herself in into the rehab, the clinic of the title, so that she can try and work out what's happened to her sister. So that's that's one plot strand. The other narrator is Kara, and what we know about Kara is that she gets poached to run this clinic. But quite early on, you get a feeling as a reader that if you can trust anyone, you can trust Kara, right? She's the one kind of giving you the straight-up stuff. She's the, yeah, the good guy. Yeah. And then, obviously, I don't really want to say much more than that. Do you, Nat? Is there anything, now you've read it as well, is there anything we can add for context that doesn't blow any of these twists and turns? No, I don't think so. I just think I was going to say on that bit where you were talking about memories and what was real and what wasn't, it kind of brought it so alive for me actually reading it because 
I think it's a fear, it's definitely a fear that I have, is that you think something's happened or you have experienced something and people don't believe you. And just that sense that somebody doesn't believe what you're saying, I find utterly terrifying. So just that sort of knowing that that was woven throughout the narrative, which I don't think is a spoiler at all, because again, it's you're never quite sure who to trust in a thriller. You're never quite sure um, where it's going to take you. But it was, I felt Thank it you. viscerally. <laughs> in my job, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this clinic in your book, it is market leading. It's state of the art. It's super expensive. Was it modelled on anything that you either attended or that you'd read about or have you kind of amped it up a little bit for creative reasons? So the, the sort of main heart of the clinic was very much based on the clinic that I attended, wow. which was a kind of quite spooky old house with a medical facility sort of grafted on. But then I also, as a former travel journalist, wanted to kind of draw on those experiences. So I sort of took the best places that I had ever been um, as a travel journalist and sort of amalgamated them into the facility. So there's an incredible spa, which is like this black labyrinthine kind of slate walled sort of place with lots of different rooms and scent caves. And, and that's based on a spa that I went to in Switzerland which was um, as, as a travel journalist, which was a really interesting experience. And then there's um, a, like a gym that has hypoxia, like an air filter, um, puts more oxygen in the air so you can get more uh, aerobic exercise done. That's based on a, um, a hotel that I stayed in that had that facility. So, so a lot of those places have kind of been. And I also thought, because we had been through COVID, just wouldn't it be nice to, for us all to go on a holiday <laughs> to, to somewhere, some glorious, luxurious place where we would be looked after and there's incredible food and and lovely luxury facilities so there was a bit of that thinking too and the cryo chamber have you tried that yes the cryo chamber so the cryo chamber is a chamber that freezes you to so i want to say minus 100 degrees which i know sounds preposterous but i really think i need to look it up now but i think it is that i remember it's a figure that doesn't sound realistic and the idea is that effect is like cold water swimming for, for rich people if you will um so you can go into these chambers in in chelsea and you know around the globe and you you only you can only go in for a few minutes you have to put on special gloves you have to um any sort of extremity you know metal earrings things like that you have to cover up and and you go in with um you've got like a almost a bikini kind of thing I don't know what they do for I guess shorts for for guys and and yeah it's good you get like with very quickly you get like snow up your nose <laughs> like when you're in there it really is the most peculiar sensation because anything that's liquid on your body is is freezing instantly and then you and then you come out kind of renewed and I was, I have to say, I came out like I had drunk 10 espressos. I went to a friend of mine's, it was his, um, I want to say stag do, I think it was. And I was like completely high off this cryo wow. uh, experience. So it did do something to me at least. It just sounds bizarre. Like there are so many of the things that you write about. So what you probably won't be able to obviously uh, see while you're listening to this is that as Kate's saying, oh, that thing I did, yeah, that was actually real. And that that particular chamber, that was real. When you read this book, you're going, what? No way can that be real. I think that people swim through different chambers of this spa and it's in complete darkness. And then it's like scented with rosemary and, and wow, like I'm, I'm still kind of like processing that 
those places actually exist. I guess everything does if yeah, you have enough I think money, so. right? And that spot, I mean, they were very proud of that spa, the town. I was taken by the tourist board and it was slightly weird because going in a professional context with a member of the, a male member of the tourist board who's then in trunks was just a, with a really slightly odd experience. So I'm kind of going as a journalist, like in my bikini <laughs> into this spa. We're kind of talking about how, what a great town it is. Yeah, so I suppose, I mean, I don't even think it's that expensive to get into, you know, I'll, I'll send you details if you're ever touring Switzerland. Yeah, I'm going to totally look that up. Um, But also I wanted to ask, did you draw physically for yourself like an outline of this clinic? Because it's in effect, the clinic uh, is like a locked room thriller in many ways, because you've got all these people in this one place. And it's very dynamic about where they can go at different times and what's accessible and what's part of that old spooky house and what is the new medical side of things. Did you have like a like a, a sort of designer's drawing that you did. I, I didn't, but that was probably because I had I was in that place, so I could kind of reasonably mm. imagine it, um, just with a few extra corridors for all of the luxury facilities, really. Very yes. cool. It's very cool. Um, do you think actually now is quite a good place to hear a little bit of the clinic before we go any oh. further? I don't know if you want to just read from the beginning or if you want to set it up in any yeah, way, Yeah, so I'm going to read. I always think with readings, it's just good to do the beginning. Maybe that's just me, because otherwise you go out of context. So I'm going to do a little bit at the beginning but I'm going to kind of like truncate the first chapter a tiny bit so you get a little bit of a, a bang at the end as is our our way of thriller writers um got the American copy actually there's two different covers so prologue the clinic was unusually loud at night addicts detoxing shouting but this part was quiet the disinfectant smell less pervasive no one had said rehab would be easy but Haley hadn't counted on it being this hard. Her agent had painted it as a vacation, a break from the drugs before returning to the recording studio and celebrity parties. They hadn't mentioned how Haley would have to perform an Oscar-worthy set of panic attacks and tearful breakdowns to avoid therapy getting personal. Because Haley couldn't go there. She really couldn't. At 27, she had had enough bad experiences to last a lifetime. And that was why she was padding barefoot along the squeaky bleached floor of this dark corridor at night, heading for the medical store. It was only when she opened the door that she saw, in the corner of the room, her hands flew to her mouth. Oh my God, bile rose in Haley's throat. Footsteps sounded behind her, and Haley knew no drug could help her now. This would be the room she would die in. So can I talk to you about some of the supporting characters? Um and where they came from. I don't want to say too much about the other people who are in rehab because I think that might be a spoiler, but there are two coppers who obviously get called because Haley has died at the very beginning in this rehab. I loved these two coppers. I thought they were great. They're not in the book very much. So I wondered, how have you managed to get me to love them when they're not on the pages very much? I mean, I loved them. So so maybe that comes across. Um, So the the two police officers in this instance, they're, they're small town cops, but they're kind of... They're really comfortable with their life. They're really happy with their small town world. And and they um, the first time you meet them, one of them turns up and she's had a family, slight family emergency. So she's had to bring her youngest baby with her on the shift and kind of no one mind. And it's sort of all right. Uh, so, so that's kind of that was fun to sort of to, to play with. And, and also just some of my experiences, I suppose, of meeting people in that, that area of the world has kind of been forged they're together. Not, they're not um, hickey, are they? Do you know what I mean? 
They're not Mickey. They have they kind of have a little bit of that about them, but they're yeah, much sharper yeah. than that. So I kind of guess they're you know that you that you would be wrong to to make that assumption about them, but maybe some people would. I also really liked the notion that she does have her baby strapped to her because it's the way it's written it's it's very normalized it's not kind of written in a oh isn't this hilarious like there's a baby it's like some shit's happened and this is how I'm gonna have to get yeah. through my days to just deal with it town. and I've yeah. had that yeah exactly we've had to kind of do that thing with childcare it's like they don't yes. go away if you're you know you've got to try and work out how to how to fix it so I found that very satisfying as a reader to see that um and and also, as you say, like is I think it's quite a skill to make them authentic to that area, but also, as you're saying, to be so they're quite ahead of the game, really. And they're also, I think, the sort of readers' eyes into the story about trying to keep track of who we should trust and who we shouldn't. Yeah, because they know something's going on, right? They're they're not they're not dumb. They've they've kind of shown up. They've been told. They've been given this almost this perfect. Um, Right, really, that they've t- showed up, everything seems to match, paperwork's all in order, but but they definitely suspect right from the start that something is not as as it should be in this clinic. As we're talking about other characters, right? I, I know we've um I've set up Meg as one of the narrators. There's a guy called Harry who's in Meg's life, and I loved him a lot. And I wondered if you felt there was a standalone book to be done with Meg and Harry in a casino somewhere. Well, I had it a tiny bit in the back of my mind that at the end of the book, because Meg's job, and I love Meg's job, so she is kind of an undercover cop, but but not for the police. So she's an undercover cop for the casino world. And I kind of felt like there could be another story for Meg where she would might be called upon with her many talents of being able to, because she's an expert poker player because she can read people's body language um, really successfully. And she can also play a part and pretend to be someone else. So, so yeah, I, I did feel like perhaps it's not currently, it's not the next book that I'm writing, but I, if someone asks me to, I, I definitely have material okay, there to, to go, go another round with Meg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's me. That's me asking you. <laughs> that is also, yeah. <laughs> okay, done. Just because you asked, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> but is that a skill that you possess as well and um, we've already kind of talked about being high on the empathy scale but in terms of being able to use those other senses of reading a room to an extreme level where you can gauge what's happening and those other hidden clues because again it was sort of so delicious to read about so obviously I would love to think that I have those skills I, there's something really interesting that came up in my rehab journey about what happens to children when they don't have their needs met and what there's almost two ways you can go so there's kind of one thing that could happen could be that you could almost shut off your emotions and cut them off and learn to do without them but then the other kind of less well-known I guess thing that happens would be that the child learns to amp up their empathy to read the needs of their caregivers in order to get their own needs met so I, I mean I can't I can't say for whether or not I would have this particular talent. I I definitely do feel, I'm always feeling like I can imagine how people feel. But I think that's the thing with empathy, whether or not I am correct in in that imagination. You know, I might be just thinking I do, but but maybe I don't. So that's the the double-edged sword of of empathy, right? 
but I, I certainly think it's a quality in most writers. So I would include you two in that as well, that you're aware of other people's feelings more than most. And it can be really tiring. Have you noticed, by the way, Nat, that's twice she's done that now. Yeah. And the first time I, I was willing yeah. to let it go. But the second time I I'm know, like, called writers. you won't find out booking Smiths <laughs> yet. 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 Yes. Exactly. Yeah, you're yes. right. Yeah, it's very kind of you. There's a, um, there's a small substrand to the plot, which I feel we can discuss, which is spoiler-free. And and I'm interested in this for a couple of reasons, but one of them is because you are clearly British. We're talking to you in the UK right now. Yeah, British yeah, accents, yeah. all of that. Um, but there's <laughs> a thing you touch on about American health insurance and about how the top clinics over-inflate the prices of drugs so they can give the best treatment to their patients. Where did you get that from? How close to the truth is that? And was that something you were especially keen to get into the book because it appalled you? Yes. So yes, all of those really. So it's very much true, very much the case. And I mean, I my personal experience of, of rehab, interestingly, I went into rehab expecting to meet a lot of scary addicts. And I would say some of the scariest people I met were running the the clinic that was a lot of my later inspiration for the book because I definitely very strongly got the sense that there's a lot of money in rehab there's a lot of money in um a lot of people relapse there's a 60 percent relapse rate I think I touched upon that in the book so there's also a lot of money from this kind of rather shady business of getting the same people back again you know that they um you know, return customers if, if you will so that's the big industry, but then also getting people into rehab. It, it's big business. It's huge money. People will pay every penny, every cent in their bank account to get their children, their loved ones, themselves better because they're desperate. So, and and it's and it's a huge sum. You know, it's sort of ten thousand pound plus. Uh, you know, to to go to a rehab. So in America, and I think there is. A, it's not quite the same here, but there's there is a lot of um, shady dealings with attracting people into rehab, and then also within the rehab itself, marking up drugs because it's all through insurance companies. So it's like insurance, you, you know, you're, you're, you the drug that you mark up, no one's necessarily going to come to your clinic and check that's what you gave out, and likewise with with testing. Uh, it's quite common for clinics to to routinely test all kinds of tests, pregnancy tests as well as drug tests, and then charge bill them out to the insurer at a huge markup. So, so yeah, it was something I was interested in in exploring. Yeah, it's fascinating um, and terrifying as well, obviously because you know it's that age old thing like you're dealing with people at their most vulnerable state, and they're not in a position to argue really so yeah. I think that's kind of you know the double-edged sword of it right it's, it's just horrible um I also really liked the the way that you deal with celebrity in the story um again it's kind of something that I know the world is fascinated with you know Phil and I have both spent much of our careers talking mm. to celebrities and I I am always fascinated by the personas that people have in a public facing job compared to how they truly are themselves and you play a lot with that in this story was that something that had really intrigued you too yes and I had have also met you know an amount of celebrities in my journalist career it always has struck me how 100% of those people I met in the celebrity world weren't 
incredibly vulnerable. See, it felt like to me incredibly vulnerable people when I talked to them. Uh, so that was of interest, and the, the clinic that I went to did have a few a few faces in there as as well. So that was also part of you know obviously I couldn't talk about that, but I could sort of fictionalize it. And then there's also something that kind of uh, came up um, in in the rehab just because I I think I mentioned that there seemed to be a, a few people from the celebrity world in there. And I was told, well, that this is extremely common. It's extremely common for any rehab to have a sort of smattering of, of people from that world. And there's almost a kind of which way around is it? Is addiction a problem of fame or is fame a, a problem of addiction? You know, it's like which comes first because they're so intertwined. Uh, the kind of person who, and, and I wouldn't possibly count myself in this, in this realm, who needs that external validation all the time is missing something and is therefore more prone to addiction and all kinds of issues. And what is that what you concluded? Yeah, and that's also based on I'm, I'm counting myself in this, you know, the, the sort of the empty heart of, of myself um, that, that needed to be kind of uh, addressed uh, during rehab that was always looking for this external approval and this external validation because I didn't have any of that in the middle of me. So do you mind, as you've raised that, do you mind, can I throw what I think would be the obvious response to that? Uh, and, and I hope this doesn't offend, but I would imagine because it, it kind of lacks emotional intelligence what i'm about to say to you and i'm aware of that and i'm saying it's i think you would have had it right these people go but what 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 was your emptiness about okay you've got those lovely children your husband your home you're a successful writer and journalist you've got many strands that you're exploring what why was that empty you know that's such a good question and i have obviously asked that a lot of myself during my rehab experience because on many levels my you know my childhood was was a kind of i was in a loving home we were like reasonably well, well resourced um but i think ultimately uh I, so my mum is probably on the autistic set um spectrum and was not diagnosed which meant that i was missing a lot of kind of the things that she just wouldn't feel, wouldn't know, you know, the sort of mum cuddly type of thing. Um, so that wasn't wasn't there. So that was a big one, I think. And then she almost kind of, um, I don't know, kind of abdicated at age around 11 or 12. We were more or less left to fend for ourselves. I think she kind of figured like, you know, it's good for you to be independent. She also did a lot of great stuff my mom so I feel very disloyal and I'm kind of okay that we're saying this deep in the podcast because I don't think she'll listen um <laughs> and then um I mean that is the one advantage actually she doesn't remember um so then the um the and then my dad was an alcoholic like a very functional a very likable alcoholic but our house was filled with alcohol bottles you know there was the occasional unpleasant um incident that comes from having an alcoholic in the family I'm told it's very common for for women, girls, whatever, with alcoholic fathers to be very defensive of them. So I'm aware that there might be an aspect of that. Um, and I don't want to underplay it because that, that yeah, it's quite obviously a smoking gun, isn't it, that someone develops a problem with alcohol. So, so, so yeah, so I had this huge sort of, I guess, sort of abandonment complex, you know, and then these very big feelings which were never really you know, acknowledged. And then, and, and really we were just kind of just a tiny bit neglected, you know, like not in any meaningful, it was the eighties. It was quite normal to neglect yeah. your kids. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, like when you were talking, I was thinking, I was thinking, I had a key at 10. Yeah. Yeah. And, and mum was back into work and dad was at work and I was in charge of my younger brother and the two of us would come and go as we please. Yeah. I mean, and, and, for, and also, you know, everyone's different, right? And there's a rehab thing that someone's trauma is another person's bad day. And it just depends on how you personally are going to respond to that. Because I would never look at my mum and criticize what she did. I think she did an amazing job, a really, really amazing job. But it just so happened that she had you know, two sensitive kids who in some ways benefited and in some ways, you know, didn't. So it's it's a mixed bag. I have no doubt, you know, I've made some failings with my own kids and they will be on a podcast with you, Phil, when you're ancient, Natalie, <laughs> when you're not so ancient because you're young and beautiful, um, telling telling you both what a terrible job I've done. Um, but, but I hope they'll avoid addiction issues. But But isn't that one of the things that's common to parenting? Don't you feel that? I feel like every day I could give you a story about how I've been a bad dad. You know, it's so <laughs> tough, isn't it? I have a friend who actually, gen- well, I don't know if he, it's a joke, he might even do this. He says every time he does something bad, he puts five pounds in a jar for their therapy when they're older. <laughs> <laughs> so they That's have a excellent. budget to draw upon. As wouldn't make yeah. that. They wouldn't make therapy. As soon as they discovered the jar, they'd go, Dad, Smith's toys. Right, it. Yeah, it'd <laughs> go, go in a flash. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is really hard. Uh, my brain is fizzing with like, yeah, like I have an empty hole inside at times. <laughs> like, and all the things I've done to mess up my kids. Yeah. And, ah. um, <laughs> did you find it cathartic writing it this way? Because again, I'm aware that you're being very open about talking about rehab, but clearly it's not a great process to go through. But was there some kind of reward through channeling it this way in the book yes there, there definitely was I enjoyed that process but I would say the biggest reward was really inside the rehab was the group with the group of people that I met because I bonded so strongly with those people I love them so much and you know we're still in touch uh and and I care so deeply about them and it was that um that mirror of having a group of people who also had addiction issues was so much more powerful, for, at least for me personally, than any therapy, because you could look at those people and realise they were like you. And that kind of made you think that maybe you weren't so bad. <laughs> so that in itself was this, you know, incredible sort of thing to come out with. Do you feel that this is your best book? Well, you know, I always feel like the last book I wrote is kind of the best because you, you feel like you improve on everyone. So so to date, yes, but I am hopeful <laughs> that it will be superseded because there's always something that you get in the feedback in. I mean, I, with reviews, I, don't, I wouldn't tend to pay much attention to one or two star reviews because I feel like they're just in the wrong place. They've just been missold or for some reason something's gone wrong. But the three star reviews, I, I read very carefully and there's always something in those three-star reviews that I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm going to get that next time. So, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm, it's always a learning process. The reason I asked that question is because, it, as we've discussed and spent a lot of time discussing, it's clearly such a personal book because so much of your experience is in it. I felt as a reader that it benefits from that because of the quotes I've already read out here, that it, it makes it so authentic. But I wonder if that was a double-edged sword for you, knowing that you'd have to do interviews like this where nosy bastards like us go, go on then, tell us about when you're in <laughs> Really, I mean, I'm such an oversharer. I will tell ev- 
anyone anything about my life pr- pretty much as long as it doesn't compromise another person if that makes sense um the, pro- the main problem I had was for my parents that I felt I was going to be disloyal um you know or that they would be really upset you know because I knew it's it's a very complicated issue to talk about parents who have really done their best but ultimately there's been some problems and people do judge so that was the hardest thing for me, I think, that feeling of disloyalty. And, and have they read it? Have they read the book? No, I asked them not to read the book. Um, I think, I mean, my mum doesn't like my books. When she, she's quite honest, she's quite direct about this. Like she, she, I mean, she won't go as far to say she doesn't like them, but she'll kind of go, oh, I didn't really understand that part. So I think I've no, um, you know, I'm fine with just asking her not to read it. Uh, I think she struggles a bit with some of them, not not to read them because she's she's pretty nosy in her own in her own way. Uh, and, and my dad too doesn't read. So no, they have they haven't read it, and I don't know if. I don't know if it would upset them to read it. I, I, it's a tricky, tricky question that they probably have come out with a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be more trouble than it's worth. I feel they're missing out though. <laughs> well, they've read a few of my books now. They've they've got that out. Good. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask about because in the in the section that you read for us from the beginning, um, I'm assumed that it's no accident that Haley, so one of the main characters in this story, um is 27 in that opening passage and that whole notion around the 27 club of celebrities who do die at that age. So like Amy Winehouse and uh, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, I think. Um, was that playing in the back of your head as an added layer? Yeah, it, it was. And I think, um, and you guys will understand this, knowing how the book ends and knowing that the character um, of this person, I think, yeah, that was, it was, there were several layers to that thought process for, for sure. But yes, it was not, deli- uh, it was not accidental. She was deliberately 27 years old. When, when I was reading it, and because it's set in the world of celebrity and there are a bunch of other famous people like musicians and actors, did you, again, I know this is a really obvious question, did you have real life people that you may or may not want to share or an amalgam of people that we think we might know in the back of our heads when you're portraying these other famouses? Yeah, 100%. And they, and they were all famous people that I had personally met um, and then kind of amalgamated a little bit with with some of the people in, in the clinic. But I, but I had to... Um, just really to keep them clear in the reader's mind, I had to almost pick one from every category. So, you know, as you say, a musician, a model, a singer. So it to kind of get just otherwise it becomes a blur and a bit difficult to know who's who. I just wanted to ask, where are you on the that that fun roller coaster journey of whether this book is going to be adapted for the screen? Because it felt so cinematic when you're reading it. I think because you know, I'm obsessed with celebrity too. You're kind of right in that world. Did were you when you were writing it? Could you visualize it having another life as well? Yeah. So, so I always do that, and and I mean, I I I love movies, and it's that's always kind of in, in my head. I I definitely also when I used to write historical thrillers would often get like people would be sort of interested in them for option, but then they'd be like, oh no, they're too expensive to produce. So part of me is always like, well, I'm going to do the cheapest possible set plan so that you guys can have no reason not to produce it. So, um, so both of my modern, um, my contemporary thrillers have been, have been optioned by, by quite big companies actually, but it's, it's a long process. And then this one, I am funnily enough just today, um, 
writing a synopsis, there is a there is a large um, director who I'm not allowed to name who who has expressed an interest. So, you know, it's it's, it's possible. So I'm doing a synopsis for them today. So you, you never know. But I think it's quite a long. I think it's like publishing on steroids, isn't it, movies? Because you have to get like the name attached and the studio attached and then the funding or it's, it's quite complicated. Yeah. It's quite a lot of circles yeah. in the Venn yeah, diagram. And, and all got that you could sort of fall out along the way. Cause I had a really good friend of mine. Um, and I can't, I can't name names, but she had a really big actress attached to her amazing book and it was an amazing book. And then this really big actress dropped out and you know, none of us mm. in our little crime writing world, you know, we, we cut a dead this actress if we saw her now. Because <laughs> it was really, you know, she had it all set up and then suddenly just this one name pulled and, and that was it, I think. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So just show, yeah, it's, it's a very, um, you need luck and timing. Just on the film thing that Natalie asked you, if this big name director that you won't name says, yeah, go, green lights, right? Would you then say, but I'll do the screenplay? Are you interested in that? Because it's I'm really fascinated. Some writers want to do it and other writers go, no, I do books. I don't do movies. They can do it. So I have... I- a few years ago, I would have said no. I don't. I just that I don't have the expertise. Rather than I'd like to have a bash, but I don't want to go in and some trained screenwriter does an amazing job and I make a hash of it. But I did. I'm more interested in the process. I had to do a few sample chapters for one of my historical um, books, which sort of nearly got a sort of thing with Lionsgate. Probably too expensive again. Um, but. And in the and then I really enjoyed actually writing that script, but I don't know. I think I would probably have to would you know say look, I'm just not experienced enough. It would be a bit crazy to have a complete novice. Uh, I, I think. But be an exec, be an, be exec. an exec, and then you get a say on the that, script. I, but I'd love to be involved if, if they made a screenplay. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted, before we kind of get to your recommendations, to touch on if people listen to this and aren't aware of the other books that you've written. So you are one of those authors who writes under two names. So you've had C.S. Quinn and Kate Quinn. And just how you found that process anyway, I'm kind of fascinated by, again, we've been talking about, you know, the different personas that we put out into the world and public and private and stuff. And then what it means if you create a different persona for yourself to write a different style of book. Well, so firstly, I think publishers t- do tend to encourage it because they they love a debut author. I don't think that's so good for the authors, actually, because I think you tend to lose people. But but then also, I think it's important if you're writing a very different genre, you don't want to disappoint people. And as an author, if you have a couple of different names, you can enjoy two different so in my case I really love writing the historical books I love writing them um but it's a, it's a slow process because obviously you have to check every single fact right down to you know if someone's using a spoon or something you literally need to check well did, would that person have a spoon and what you know it really is that sort of level so that slows <laughs> it down but then you also get great ideas from that as well because you go off to research that and then something really interesting will ping up um and then the contemporary are, are much faster to write, but then you, I find you often kind of skid into the dirt, kind of, you know, what am I getting? Okay, I'm stuck now. You know, I need to kind of get something um, fresh to write about. So I think it just gets you to do different different things. I mean, I love writing. I love writing so much. I love writing so much that I quite often at the end of a book will, will be like too, almost too excited to sleep because I know for weeks at a time, yeah, I'll go to bed being like, I just want to wake up because when I wake up, then I'm going to be able to go and write my book and find out what happens. So I, I would need a couple of things to keep me busy, I think. 
And did you allude to us earlier that you're, you're already writing your next book? Yes. So my next book um, is is based on as a sociolite heiress who's getting married in a big grand wedding and somebody in her bridal party is killing her bridesmaids. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a really fun book to write because I got to go into, I do all the wedding fairs and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so it's enormous fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, can I tell you the best wedding fair experience yes. we had? I mean, it was nine years ago now, but we went to view what what was then going to be our actual venue. We didn't know on the Saturday morning we went, right? And it was just me and my now wife, then fiance, right? And uh, we're going, oh, yeah, it looks pretty nice. Have a look around and blah, blah, blah. There's a couple in front of us, and they're clearly there with the bride's mother, right? And the groom spends his entire time with his hands behind his back, right? Look like leaning forward for, in a very deferential manner. And every time that the um, prospective bride says, uh, seat covers, should we do seat covers? The, the mother answers first. She goes, yes. And and he just writes it down on a little list well, and doesn't he, say anything. He's just like the lucky <laughs> I, taking the name of the mum's wedding. I nudged my missus and I said, have you seen what's going on over there? And she looked and I said, he's going to be, he's he's having a cameo at his own wedding, that guy. Yeah, that's it. He'll be a little Someone needs little to stage an intervention. Phony. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, yeah. I did talk yeah. to someone and I thought this was very honest of him. He'd just been married. And uh, and I said, oh, did you enjoy the um, the wedding? And he said, you know, I didn't really quite realise how much of my wedding day would be spent at a table with my in-laws. And had I, had I realised what proportion of my wedding day would be spent at a table with my in-laws, I probably just would have gone out for a dinner with them and spent a lot less money or maybe <laughs> organised it in a, in a different way. That's an interesting time. I I, I yeah. loved mine, but I do remember did. thinking that I was I was on. Do you know what I mean? I was yeah. I felt like I was on shift until I'd done my turn. Right. And once I'd done my turn, I felt like right, that's it now. Now I can let my hair down and have a couple of drinks. But until that, I felt like I was working almost. Do you know what I mean? Because I, I had so many it. things to do. Yeah, because me and me and my partner recently um, we had a really informal I and mean, it was so informal kind of get together. And and I think I'm just a bit older now. I can't handle the adrenaline. But I, it made me think. Oh God. If we were actually, you know, we'd we're in a really formal church or whatever, with everyone sat down, and it would be really like, you know, it would feel like like work. Sure. Could you just because mainly because yeah. you don't want to mess it up. You know what I mean? You've got I've got these vows are the most important things I'll ever say in my life. I don't want to get them wrong or oh, stumble I love on that them. You all. saw it that way. You're such a nice person. I, 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 <laughs> I, I would imagine nine out of ten men would not be worried about these vows being the most important thing they'll ever say and messing them up. I'm guessing. Guess. I'm going to take a straw poll of all the. Oh, well, wow. they'd probably just be, well, not in a, okay. a bad way, but they just would want to, you know, get them said and, and move on. Take more get notes from the mother-in-law, the you know, get to the... <laughs> <laughs> feel I'm staying silent but um I did enjoy my wedding but I got really drunk a few days before so I was still quite like mm, on the oh, actual no, day of my really? wedding uh yeah and then um I just hate people looking at me so I kind of hated the sort of I hated being the center of attention which lots of you know even like my friends stuff were like oh be like you talk on the radio all the time like why do you not like them like yeah because it's radio yeah. it's like no I can <laughs> see you it's a different thing. I didn't like the... Yeah, yeah my partner really didn't like that kind of, oh, like, look that's, at the bride. That's why we, we didn't do the big, he hates it. And, you know, you mm. are who you are. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Should we get some recommendations from you? Other yeah. books that you've loved could yeah. be anything. So, so recently, the book that I've enjoyed most recently is a book called The Resort by, and I hope I'm going to say her name right, I think it's Sarah Ox. Um, it might be Oaks. It's O-C-H-S. I think it might be a, a Swedish name because she spends time in that part of the world. 
but you might have seen it's, it's published a penguin you've probably seen it in the uk it's known as the dive in america it's called the resorts and it's just such a fun locked room thriller on a thai island it's like your best thai holiday ever rolled up with uh, an offshore dive and a murder mystery it's, it's fantastic i love that one and also we're um quite honored really we're, we're sort of um book buddies a little bit because when you published at the same time as someone else you often come up in the same so we're quite often kind of name checked in the same instagram feed which is nice so we're like we're, we're sort of friends cool. <laughs> um, so it's O-C-H-S. ochs i'm assuming it's ox right. I'm, I'm guessing okay. i need to i should have asked her before we are a little bit in contact um and then the second book um i i'm lucky enough to get the um the arc the early review copies so there is um uh, an author called tony Wirtz. Uh, who did a book called Just Stay Away, um, and his new book, Pike Island, which is due out next year, absolute cracker, so, so good. Like, of the thriller genre, it was just, I I just loved it. Had a bit of political thriller in there, but it was a spooky old house on an island. Brilliant. Um, and then finally, another ARC, but it's out soon, uh, Things Went Dark by Bea Fitzgerald, which I really enjoyed. And she is the person who wrote Girl, Woman, Queen, which you might have seen around, um, which is a kind of alternative telling of the um, Persephone story. And it's huge. And you'll, uh-huh. you'll see it now. And, it's, and I didn't realise it was the same author because the Girl, Woman, Queen is a very different sort of book. So that's a thriller, um, <clears throat> kind of like a Big Brother type thriller, but with a murder. But she, her weaving of the TV world is, is just epic. And I loved it. I'm imagining you now with like one finger. Do you do not, the thumbs? Do you do the two? I've recently yeah. learned, do you? Yeah. You say down with the kids. I recently trained myself yeah. to do that because I realised I was a, a one fingerer. The, the, the thumbs is mostly because the eldest boy is into thumb wars. He must have done thumb wars, right? I'm so good at thumb wars. We, if we ever oh. meet in real life, I'm taking you down with thumb wars. I've got the longest thumbs. <laughs> nail, nail or no uh, nail? I don't, I don't, no I don't nail, have a long man. nail, so you're right there. I'm not, I feel no. like I would be cheating. But, um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. but, but also, you know, a pretty competitive <laughs> streak in that, in, in only that arena, because that's the only arena that I've ever experienced any success in competitively. <laughs> As, as a brilliant, formidable creator of characters, what impression are you getting of my co-presenter now? She doesn't like to be seen, but she likes to use nails in thumb wars. And <laughs> she true. loves cats. What are we saying about Natalie? It, that's a dark side, isn't it? That you you wouldn't expect yeah. a, a lovely Natalie, a beautiful, kind face. And they turned out... With my emotional yeah, black holes. Emotional, how long are these nails? Can I see how long are the nails? Yeah, they're not very long. Mom they're nails. like just normal. Yeah, they're enough. Mum knows and mum's normal. Enough to inflict a little bit of pain just to stop the game. Um, right. But... I, don't, I don't know. That's, uh, I mean, it's a dark turn. It's a, a, a twist, if you will. Um... <laughs> If you if you could forward the psychopath test to her after this, then we'll see how highly yeah. she scores. I've done it. Yeah, fine. Go on, what, fine. What, were what were you, Matt? Uh, I did. I can't remember. Did you get a percentage? Like, I got a percentage on mine. On the psychopath. Yeah, but you, you say that as if I'm ever going to remember a percentage. Yeah. No, I'm 50, 54%. Kate. No, you're not. Are you? That's what it came out You yeah. like your wedding vows are the most important vows you would ever say. That can't be someone <laughs> who would score anything meaningful. Superficial well, I mean, charm. It's just over halfway, isn't it? Superficial charm, that's where you're going down, isn't it? Superficial charm, maybe, yeah, and and a lack of empathy in certain areas, which I'll discuss with you when we're not on this. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> well, this has been enlightening. <laughs> All comes out, isn't it? All comes out. Um, Kate, the book is superb. So I hope, I mean, I, you don't need my validation, but if it helps as an early reader, um, <laughs> you had no fears at all. You had no fears over writing a book sober and worrying about creativity. It's brilliant. It's everything I want from a Kate Quinn book and the characters are beautifully shaped and formed and I feel like I got to know and that's why I want another Megan Harry. So you're going to have to do that. So do this next one about right. the wedding that goes wrong and then after that go back to Megan you've got to do Harry. Megan yeah. Harry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I will be knocking your door. <laughs> okay. Good to know. I'll, I'll, I'll let my publisher know that you've requested going in. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing bestsellers. Thank you. I think I should say to start with that I don't actually maim my children with my nails in Thumb War. Just um, in case social services <laughs> listen. <laughs> I think that was just kind of a, a bit of a repressed memory that I think I remember being at school and you'd play that. And then sometimes, you know, it would get a little bit like not bitey, but, you know, nail like. Um, but I don't do that. that my kids. Oh, that is well, cheating. Whilst we're doing confessions then on Thumb yeah. Wars, I'll confess to you. I. I subconsciously cheat <gasps> against my seven-year-old but it's okay. only because so i'm not doing anything to actively manipulate the thumb war it's because he hasn't worked out yet that my thumb is longer than his <laughs> so it's almost virtually impossible for him to beat me <laughs> yeah. so i That's do that thing sweet. where when you you know you get it you so you alternate i'm gonna yeah. describe this to you now you, you've you've hooked fingers in a grip and you go mm-hmm. one two three four i declare, I declare thumb, thumb war. war and then you have to trap that person's thumb underneath yours, which is usually on the spine of the index finger. Yeah. So what I do is to tempt him in, I stroke that space on his mm. index finger. So he thinks he can get my thumb and then I withdraw it and go over the top every time. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just say my uh, eldest child, who is 15, is a demon at a thumb war. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. In terms of parenting skills, uh, yeah, I think we've done well there. Well passed um, on. Yeah, I think so. I think so for sure. Um, but also, uh, just I enjoyed that conversation with Kate so much. I mean, I know we say this a lot and I don't mean it to sound sycophantic or stalkery, but um, it's such a joy generally and a privilege to be able to hang out with these people and and hear about their creative minds. Like it's it generally still gives me a proper thrill and um, I'm being fully authentic that hopefully in not a stalker way i would love to like mm. know more about kate and you know sure. have a chat with her go out for a coffee and 100 um, yeah such and a lovely I, um, person and it that's a relief to me because this is one of my books that i bought yep. to the party and so i always like it when i fling it your way and you go yeah loved it too that's always really good phew <laughs> can we do some thank yous we need to thank and i don't quite know how laura managed this because i'm fairly certain when we relaunched that we didn't really plug uh, Kofi page, but Kofi, coffee basically is ko-fi.com slash bestsellers podcast is where if you like what we do and you want to help us keep it going, and we've had a lot of expense recently with video editing software, audio editing software, the Zoom renewing, um, then you can help us out with our costs to keep the pod going. And Laura, three days ago, um, bought us a coffee. It's a euphemistic coffee. I even did the speech marks there, even though you can't see me. 
And Laura wrote, recently discovered this podcast and love everything about it. Thanks to you guys, I picked up Curtis Sittenfeld's romantic comedy and just wow, exactly the book I needed to start 2024, which is the loveliest message that we could receive. Uh, you know, much more lovely than the actual donation itself, to be honest, is to know that we're doing the right things and that we're encouraging you to read great books and discover writers that you wouldn't have discovered before. So if you want to show similar gratitude and you can afford to, you can find us at ko-fi.com, ko-fi.com slash podcast. And Laura, thank you very much. And we've got loads more great writers and recommendations for you. So I hope it doesn't get too expensive in the bookshop. <laughs> yeah, and thank you for letting us know. It's always, um, generally, we love it when we hear what you've been reading. And if we have recommended a book that you've also enjoyed, yeah, tell us. More news on website and everything coming soon too.